Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today we have Scott Johnson, who's the CEO and co-founder of Liquid Sky. Scott's an experienced tech hand. His previous startup, WayIn.com, provides big brands and professional sports teams with social media curation and display software. Prior to WayIn, Scott ran a quantitative hedge fund. Welcome aboard, Scott. Happy to be here. So tell me a little bit, you came from a finance background. What, what did that entail? Well, when I was getting out of college, everyone I went to school with wanted to be on Wall Street, wanted to become a lawyer or a professor. <laughs> Those were the three things. Uh, there was no entrepreneurial landscape to speak of. I wanted to go to Wall Street. That's where my older brothers were. So I ended up at Solomon Brothers in the 80s, which was a very fortuitous move because that was the famous liar's poker era. And it was sort of the epicenter of the financial world for probably about a decade. And a hell of a lot of fun and an incredibly creative, stimulating place to be, uh, as was Wall Street, just generally speaking at that time. Uh, and then I did a stint while still in finance, uh, living in Hong Kong, uh, and then launched my own hedge fund in 96 and had about an 11-year run with that, did, did pretty well with it. We got up to about $330 million. and then closed shop, uh, I'm very pleased to say, on an up year in 2006. Nice. Well, your, your timing couldn't have been much better. Uh, it was. Uh, there was actually a bit of a meltdown in the strategic area that I occupied in August of '07, and I sort of felt that coming. I'm not going to say I predicted it, but it felt like it was coming, and it did come, and we, we avoided it. So your passion now is in the tech field. How did you go from that finance background and make the move into that space? Well, I've always liked uh, starting things. I even, you know, going back into the 80s, on the side, I started a nightclub and a restaurant in, in Manhattan, and that was a great deal of fun. Obviously, the hedge fund was something I started. Uh, but as technology really started exploding, especially in the consumer area in the 90s and the aughts, um, I couldn't help it. I, I, in fact, my family started to get annoyed because every day at the dinner table, I'd be spouting off some new idea that I had. So clearly my heart and my mind were starting to drift away from finance. And that was sort of um, accelerated by the fact that uh, finance was becoming becoming a much less interesting place to work. Uh, the combination of Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank have really put a stranglehold on Wall Street. You know, if you were creative in the 80s and you, uh, you came up with some new idea, it might be a new product the next week. And now if you're creative and you have a new product idea, you're probably breaking a law. In fact, there are probably two different sets of regulations that contradict each other. <laughs> um, so uh, it got to the point where I felt like I couldn't even pick up a phone and call a client without consulting uh, a lawyer or in-house in uh, compliance first. And it was – it became mind-numbing. And you ended up spending most of your day dealing with compliance issues and legal issues and HR issues – and very little of your day actually doing what you enjoy doing, your job. So um, I always was thinking of these new ideas. And, of course, then the iPhone, smartphones, exploded onto the scene. Right. And um, I got an iPad the first week they came out because I'm a geek. And I was in my living room with one of my kids who was, I think, watching a game show. And I was sort of staring at my iPad, wondering, you know, how I was going to use this thing. Uh, what ways could I use it other than just sort of consuming content? 
And I don't know why, but I put two and two together between the TV screen and my kid and the game show and my iPad. And so the very first sort of nugget of an idea behind Weigh In, believe it or not, was a game show. So the thought was, why couldn't you have a game show where instead of being the lucky contestant in the, the game show studio, why couldn't you play from home? You have these devices. Why can't you connect these devices with television? So take us through the weigh-in experience. You, you've got this kernel of an idea, and with most entrepreneurs, you want to get to a business plan, and there's some structure around that. Maybe talk a little bit more about what, what weigh-in does and then how you turned the idea into action. It's a good question because I had nothing to do with the tech industry at the time. And I, you know, I realized maybe the idea was a bit broader than a game show that mobile phones and tablets represented an, an incredible opportunity for real-time interaction and data collection. So I knew there was one good phone call I could make. I, an old friend of mine is a guy named Scott McNeely who um, was the co-founder and CEO of Sun Microsystems, um, which if you were around in the tech world in the 80s and 90s, they were uh, the cat's meow, um, right. probably a Fortune 100 company at one point. And, you know, I got to Scott at the right time. He'd sold Sun to Oracle and uh, had spent a few months hanging out at home and uh, I think was getting a little bored. Uh, he immediately saw that the nugget of, the, of an idea was uh, a compelling one. And, you know, the long story short is we ended up going to business with each other, which was the best possible or actually beyond any um, result for that phone call that I imagined. Um, <laughs> But it it was great, and he's a, he's a wonderful partner and a great guy. Uh, he's currently our CEO at Wayne, as a matter of fact. So you know, we we put the company together. We based it in Denver. We kind of split the difference between us. He's a Silicon Valley guy, uh, and I spent a couple of years going out to Denver almost every week for two to three days, which got a little tiring, but was also very exciting at the same time. And you know, it it grew and evolved. I mean. What originally started as a sort of a, a platform for, for Q&A with back-end data collection, the first big evolution point was we invented a technology to do Q&A on, on the Twitter platform. Right. Which um, Twitter now has Twitter polls. So if you create a tweet, you can embed a poll if you want. But they didn't have it at the time. So we created the, the first way for people to create a simple poll and embed it in Twitter. And that grew into a real relationship with Twitter, and we now have access to the full Twitter data pipe, which is, I think, 800 million tweets a day. And we also, uh, incidentally, have access to the Facebook data pipe and the Instagram data pipe. So the, these are the data resources that we access. So um, we were doing that, and uh, we came up with different ways for people to – companies to embed Q&A into various um, contexts like their websites and you know, make it interactive with their customers. And then the, the Mitt Romney campaign asked us to build out something a little more sophisticated, kind of a, a wall, if you will, of, of social media interaction with the Romney campaign. And that really was the spark that evolved into the current business, which is enabling big brands to search, curate, and display social media content, uh, the conversation going on around their brands. Because there's whether you like it or not, there's a conversation going on around your brand. I mean, we went to see Goldman Sachs, and that's what we told them because they, they, they thought social media was beneath them. We said, look, whether you like it or not, people are talking about your brand. Do you want to get out in front of it? 
So there's a lot going on with social media and lots of hits and eyeballs and followers. And and how do you how do you charge for that? How do you monetize it so that uh, you know you're taking uh, brands with big followings and having helping them track that? When does it become a good business? We have close to 100 percent retention of our clients, which mm-hmm. has been fantastic. Uh, so obviously they're seeing value. Uh, it's not inexpensive. You know, this is not something for a, a little company to use. You know, hopefully someday it will be. But right now, you know, a typical customer might pay us something like $100,000 a year for our services. And they use these services in a lot of different ways. And you know, it might be interesting to talk about a couple just sure, so absolutely. to make it more understandable. So, for instance, uh, Best Buy is a good example. We created a widget for them, which showed the top 10 trending items that were also on sale in their stores. So we were using Twitter to gather that data and to analyze it. And so if you walked into a Best Buy, you'd see a big um, display that would show you 10 different hashtags of various products and their ranking in the, in the order that people were talking about them on Twitter. And the ranking, you could be watching it and it would change periodically. Oh, wow. And this was also on display on their website. So the click-through rate was an order of magnitude higher than click-through rate rates normally are. I mean, Best Buy was thrilled uh, because you'd see, hey, people are talking about something. Maybe I should check it out, which leads to the major point here, which is that People trust messaging from fellow consumers something like 10 times as much as they trust messaging from the brand itself. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is to leverage um, good things that people are saying about your brand uh, and get them out there and and use that um, moral suasion. So I'll give you a great example. We went to see Dunkin' Donuts, who subsequently became a a client, and we showed them a tweet that said, uh, just moved to L.A., no Dunkin' Donuts here. I can't, can't, can't go to Starbucks. L.A. is dead for me. I think that barely fit into 140 characters, but that, that was, that was 139 and a half. essentially what the tweet said. And it, you know, it was, a, it was funny. It's not coming from the brand itself. Uh, it, it's, it's the kind of thing you want to take in and then spit back out and make sure lots of people see it other than the four people who might have followed this woman. Um, so we do that and – and brands then display this stuff in in interesting ways. I mean, so the um, Denver Broncos, for instance, if you go into their stadium, you'll see social media everywhere. If you're waiting in line for a hot dog, there'll be a display. There are ribbon boards around the, the inside of the stadium. There's the scoreboard, of course, uh, and then there's their website. So if you tweet something and you're a Broncos fan, you know, you might have a decent chance of, of uh, sitting in the stadium and, and, you know, seeing your tweet or your, even your picture uh, up on the wall. And that, uh, that makes the $100 ticket experience that much better sure. and, and then gets the brand out even further. I had this experience myself. Bank of America rented a huge digital billboard in Times Square on New Year's Eve. It was right over Ryan Seacrest's shoulder. And basically, the idea was uh, they wanted you to tweet with a specific hashtag, and the hashtag was how they would you know, find your tweet, right. a photograph of your New Year's Eve festivities wherever you were. So the Johnston family sent in a picture from Florida where we were, and so for 30 seconds, the Johnston family was on this 70-foot digital billboard <laughs> on, in Times Square on New Year's Eve. So I experienced myself this sort of little charge you get from, from a moment like that. And it's a wonderful way for brands to um, involve their their consumers. Well, and double the experience in many ways. 
So, so how do you interact with advertising agencies? It seems like that that is the, the domain for that type of expertise. And so uh, they're theoretically advising brands and companies as to how to access this type of thing. You've got a powerful tool that in some ways can work with or you know work against advertising agencies as they sort of develop brands or otherwise try to make them that much more effective. Well, advertising and marketing are uh, interesting places to be right now because – they're completely uh, getting upended by technology. So I mean that in a good way, if it is good in assuming you keep up. Actually, I have a kid in college right now, and I'm, I'm telling him he ought to look into marketing as a career because the landscape has so utterly changed in the last five years. And these big budgets that these brands had, they were spending on you know newspaper ads, magazine ads, you know, and some many still do. I don't know why anyone spends one cent on that. There's no way to measure your return on investment. Uh, You're just sort of throwing it out there and hoping. Whereas with um, anything that's digital, there are various ways of measuring the impact and the return. So, you know, the smarter advertising agencies understand this. The big brands start are starting to understand it. And the spend is still skewed. I mean, if you if you look at how people spend their time, TV is falling considerably. Reading magazines and newspapers is falling off a cliff. Sure. But time spent on the internet is booming, but yet the, the ad budgets are still skewed towards the old model. But it's changing rapidly. But you know, the, as a result, the winds are really at our back. And so what's the next step to take way in from the big brand uh, down to the intermediate-sized brands and to help them grow? Uh, how do you get the business to be bigger what is your thought process I don't around know. It's that? Not really a, it's not really a consumer product. We actually messed around with some consumer stuff uh, early on. Uh, you know, We had a consumer site where you could go do – you create your own questions and other people would answer them sort of you know, democratizing polling. But it, you know, it wasn't exactly scientific. So I, I don't see this becoming a consumer level thing or um, you know, hopefully we can make it something that's valuable for much smaller companies as well. But really there, there, is, there is time and energy that goes into servicing every account. I mean people are involved in, in man hours and things like that. It's not just delivering – it's not just SaaS software as a service, right? It's not right. just a here's some software, have fun with it. It's a little more time intensive than that. Mm-hmm. So, what's the where would you like the company to be in five years? Do you think? Well, we've invented a new industry along with a couple of others that that didn't exist before, and it was made possible by social media, which didn't exist before. Really, I don't know, call it two thousand five or six. Sure. So, you know, I, I'm always leery of questions like this. It's like saying, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" Well, I, I've actually spent the majority of my career doing things that didn't exist when, when I was in college. So projecting five years for anything is um, – <laughs> it, it was a hazardous business in the 80s, but as technology accelerates, it's becoming even more hazardous. Well, so. and in the tech world, in five years, one of the FANG companies might not even exist anymore. Uh, unlikely, but uh, we've, we've seen everything from a MySpace go from being very important to completely mm-hmm. – irrelevant within the space of a couple of years. So uh, I see your point. I, I will say I'm, I'm enthusiastic about applying our technology to politics, and, and, and we already are a bit. I mean, we also can, can use our technology for political research. I'll give you an example. Um, we spoke to the Cruz campaign a few weeks ago, and we told them that, you know, I don't know if you recall that one debate where Cruz said that Trump had New York values. Right. 
Well, that was a very deliberate thing on Cruz's part. He knew it wouldn't play well in New York, but the question is, does it play well elsewhere? It probably was going to play well in Iowa, where, where he at the time was focusing, right? Sure. So with our technology, we can also an- analyze sentiment in, in, in social, embedded in social media by, analyzing, by picking up on certain words. And we could show something like the Cruz campaign exactly where the comments were playing well and where they weren't playing well. And literally down, down to a county level and if you wanted to, all the way down to a street level. Mm-hmm. I mean, the data might not be as meaningful on a street level, but certainly down to a town level. Uh, and in a national election, especially in the last bunch of cycles where the election results really came down to 30 to 50 counties, it sounds like mm-hmm. you can really allocate your resources that much more efficiently that way. Well, so let's say a campaign determines that people who drive pickup trucks are more likely to vote for you. We can isolate social media posts that said positive things about pickup trucks down to a county if you want. So you, you, can, you can sort of find those voters so much more efficiently than you ever could before. So Weigh In is not your only tech project. Uh, you're now uh, focused on Liquid Sky as well. What, what is that all about? So Liquid Sky, interesting origin story. When I had my hedge fund, our outsourced IT guy was a 13-year-old kid who uh, lived not far away, and I knew his parents, and he'd come over and fix our local area network and things like that. He just seemed to have this natural affinity for anything electronic or mechanical. It was, it was quite amazing. Well, he got a bit older, and uh, I got a call from his parents one day saying, you know, Ian's got a really good idea, but, you know, he doesn't know as much about the business end of things, and he's never started a company before, and uh, maybe you guys should talk. So I went and um, heard what he had to say, and in fact, it was a good idea. It was born of a summer job he had working for this global engineering company where one of his assignments was to do a 3D rendering of a a valve. Now, that sounds like a really prosaic thing, and it is. But the fact is doing 3D renderings is really hardware intensive. You need very expensive computers to do it. Well, actually, he figured out it would have taken two or three weeks to render the valve with the computing resources they had. Right. So that, that that's processing power and things like that to crunch the numbers to to, yes. to generate the CAD renderings and very very hardware intensive. So they ended up buying I think an eight thousand dollar computer to do it in in a shorter period of time. And he was thinking I should just be able to rent this. I should be able to access a, a computer in the cloud and pay whatever, some small fraction of $8,000. And when the project is over, we don't own an $8,000 computer that we don't want anymore. That was the kernel of of the idea. I immediately recognized the the value of it. Actually, by the time he came to me, he had already done a lot of the work. He was still in college. And on his own in, in his spare time, he'd already put together, he'd solved a lot of very complex compression problems and network optimization problems that others haven't solved and still haven't solved. So here's a question. How much of that do you understand maybe at the code level or do you understand it at the 30,000-foot level and then you apply your business background to it? So I I can't code at all, nor can Scott McNeely, I, I would add, mm-hmm. and he ran a big computer company, and, and nor could Steve Jobs. <laughs> so I'm not putting myself in, in that pantheon quite yet, but I'm just trying to point out that um, you need to understand what computing can do and what technology can do, and you need to understand the vernacular. You know, To be in the business, you don't necessarily have to be the guy coding yourself. So call it the 30,000-foot level. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm too old to learn uh, learn to code at this point. <laughs> I did sort of take a stab or two at it, but <laughs> um, I decided it wasn't the best use of my time. So Ian and I decided to start something, start a company. We called it Liquid Sky. Um, and the real goal here, the, the big vision behind it is to reduce the world's computing costs. So your computer should not be something you buy and have to replace every four years. It should just be a screen that accesses the internet and you rent your computer forever. So you never have to buy another computer. You can use any device you want to access your computer. You can use your smartphone. You can use your smart TV. You can use any kind of screen that gets on the internet. And if you want to change the specs of your machine, you just change the subscription. So if you have a temporary need for that, for greater resources, you just up your subscription and and we think this is a great tool for businesses because right now if you hire someone and then fire them or they leave, you've got to repurpose their hardware and worry about capturing all their files and, and all that goes away with this. This ties into the, the concept of the sharing economy. So this brings down costs by probably 80%, eventually more, because you're not buying a computer every four years and you're replacing it with a monthly fee that's relatively tiny. So you're doing that by sharing resources. You know, right now you have a tower under your desk or something and you use it, uh, let's just say, four or five hours a day. Well, the other 19 or 20 hours, it's a wasted resource. If you put a server in the cloud, it's always being accessed by different people and it's, it's, um, it doesn't have a lot of downtime. So just conceptually, that's one of the reasons we can bring costs so far down. Well, it's a fascinating – it's a billion-person problem, which is exactly – you know, it's disruption and – uh, it's the type of thing where you can have a real seismic change on the way people interact with computers and internet. It, it sounds amazing. One of the issues I would think is uh, security. H- how do you deal with that? And uh, and then how do you get people to adopt? Well, the security is better than you have on your own home computer. It's nth level encryption, or and this is where the uh, the technical details go over my head. But mm-hmm. the security is extremely high level. I think there'll be early adopters who will get the word out that, hey, this really does work and it is secure. And, and there will be some people who are later adopters who are going to wait and see, I think. As far as getting the word out, um, well, we've decided that the best way to do that is focus on the gaming industry first. This was a big decision we spent months making. And you know, we have a bigger fish we want to fry. And I didn't really get into this to make the lives of gamers easier. <laughs> That's not really helping the world. But um, – it is solving a problem, which is if you want to be um, a serious gamer, and there are 1.1 billion people who play PC games in the world right now, an astonishing number. If you want to be a, a serious gamer, you need a computer that costs $2,000 and up to play you know, the, the advanced games. It just requires very heavy-duty hardware. So we replace that with uh, a pricing model that's considerably less. Our initial pricing model will be about 10 bucks a month for our beta, our initial beta users or 40 cents an hour. So that's a whole lot less than spending $2,000. And you don't have to spend another $2,000 in four years when, when your computer becomes out of date. Right, well, when, when Moore's Law kicks in and, uh, and everything pops up. So one of the issues that may pop up is server load. Do you get so many people at one point that you have to cut people out because there's just not enough room or bandwidth uh, for you to support? Well, it's not a bandwidth issue, but you do have to manage your server capacity very carefully. And this is a problem every cloud computing company has to deal with. How many servers? Servers are very expensive. Our servers are especially expensive because we're doing very high-end stuff. 
So we don't want too many servers relative to our population or we'll lose money. But we don't want too few either because then people will try to get on and our servers will be full. So you have to build a little slack into the system. You have to figure out what your peak loads are, You know what time of the day people are tending to come on. And so that's something where we're collecting data and – um, if they can't get on, we, you know, we want to be very humble and apologetic and make sure they get on as quickly as possible. And the good news is we can spin up a new server in any location with all of our specs in three hours. So if you get some sort of quick need, you can respond to it quickly. We can, yes. So we, we're going after that industry. And, and gamers are a real viral crowd. I mean, they all talk to each other. And so getting the word out has not been difficult. In fact, during our beta period, we've had 210,000 people try to get into the beta. We've only been able to accept about 50,000 of them just because we don't have enough servers right now. But we have all their emails and we're launching in a broader way in the next week, actually. And uh, we're going to be working with Twitch TV. Uh, That's another way to get the word out. Twitch is where people, um, where gamers can stream their gaming experiences so other people can watch what they're doing. Now, that, that's a funny one to me. If you'd come to me or if I – let's say if I went – I came to you four years ago and said, I've got an idea for a new business. I'm going to have an internet site where people can go and watch other people play video games. Would you put money in that? Probably not. Although the way ESPN's going right now, they're probably looking real hard at that type of scenario. Well, in fact, Twitch TV, Twitch.tv, sold to Amazon a year ago for a billion dollars, a billion-dollar company in four years. And it's becoming bigger than professional sports. More people watch the League of Legends tournament finals than watch the World Series. Well, the crazy part, too, is that it could dovetail with Hollywood production as well. In some ways, if you can remove the screenwriter and the script of a game is being dictated by the top video game players in the world, maybe that's its own form of entertainment that that didn't exist before. Well, if you think about it, um, you watch the World Series, and that's entertaining for many, but you're not playing baseball at the same time unless you're still in school. With League of Legends or World of Warcraft or whatever, the or Halo, you've played the exact same maps and undertaken the same challenges as these guys who are you know, incredibly good. So you're sort of seeing something that you can relate to much more personally, and, and you're seeing how they overcome the various challenges. And... That's what a lot of people find extremely compelling. They are selling out places like Madison Square Garden, particularly in Asia, to watch six people down in the ring in the middle participate in one of these tournaments, and they have big screens projecting it. That's unbelievable to me. It it is unbelievable, and this is all in the last few years. And there are people now making well into six figures as professional gamers. Um, So, And there are people at Twitch. Okay, so if you stream to Twitch, people can give you money, and they do. So what happens is you're broadcasting essentially your game as, as you're playing it. Your face is way up in the corner and you're giving running commentary to all your fans watching you. And your fans can type in little questions that sort of scroll down the side and comments and whatever. And you can react to your fans. You're interacting with your fans in a way that a baseball player can't. And they can give you money if they're pleased. And a lot of these guys get given a lot of money. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I, I'm in the wrong gig. <laughs> I think so. I didn't know Pitfall and Asteroids would uh, could turn into something like that. <laughs> so video games being sort of the first thing that you're focusing on, it seems like uh, the, the shared computing power would have real application to research universities, government, you know, big problem-solving endeavors. Is that something that you're looking at uh, into the future? 
Well, we want to unveil something called Skyscraper, which is described on our website, hopefully by the fourth quarter of this year, which is basically liquid sky for businesses and educational institutions to bring down their computing costs. So if you're a person who just does sort of routine office things, almost all those things are done on the internet now. I mean, how many applications do we really use natively anymore? Some people are still using Microsoft Office natively. That's still probably the biggest one. By natively, of course, I mean on your own computer as Mm -hmm. opposed to in the cloud. But now we have Google Drive where you can use essentially the whole suite of Office products that Microsoft Office offers. Uh, And that's all in the cloud and easily shareable and it saves to the cloud automatically. It's wonderful. Microsoft Office itself is now offered in the cloud. So there's really nothing you can't do that's not cloud-based now. And in fact, people pretty much are doing everything in the cloud now, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. So it all becomes connecting and, and internet speed. And the one cool thing we offer is you get our internet speeds, not yours. So if you have a crappy internet connection, your, your problems are over. Um, so this could include a- – anyone can include research universities or just someone living in the middle of the boondocks that has a terrible connection. So the way that works is you're essentially seeing a streamed experience from a computer that might be hundreds of miles away. And that computer, our server, is on the backbone of the internet. We get up to one gig a second in download speeds and you get our speeds. You're, you're seeing our speeds. It's as if they're on your own computer. So we think there's a huge demand for that, particularly in the third world. I mean, no we've question. Had, we've had people in Australia, not that's third world, but we've had people in Australia tell us the entire continent has terrible internet speeds and they would kill for something like this. So we're thinking of offering maybe a consumer version of Skyscraper, which is basically just you know getting on the internet using our service. And as far as the research universities, well, they have situations like Ian had with his uh, engineering project where you need to crunch major data or do major simulations. Uh, and that's really expensive or it requires very expensive hardware. And they could, rather than buying all that stuff and having it become obsolete in a few years, we'll just rent them the higher plan, which instead of being 5 bucks a month, which is my, what a basic office plan might be, might be $25 a month. And so it seems like Correct me if I'm wrong. You've got a lot of infrastructure you've got to either – I don't know if it's build yourself or access. How does that work? Uh, how, do you, how do you avoid the problem of having to have millions of servers? And how did you go about solving the problem of maybe getting away from being hardware dependent to aligning with a lot of shared resources? So when Facebook was starting out, and you may recall they were, at, they were adding one university at a time, every time they added a new school – they had to drive, I think, 20 miles down from Palo Alto down to somewhere, I forget what town they had their server farm in, and they had to jam all these all, a bunch of new servers into racks. They physically would go do this. So they had to have their own farm. So that was not that long ago. That was probably 06 maybe. Well, now no one really does that anymore. And one of the significant developments has been the advent of cloud computing and providers like Amazon Web Services. Now, we happen to use IBM software. And we have reasons for that, which is we have very specific and exacting requirements in our servers that are part of what makes all what we do possible. Specifically, some of the the magic in delivering you an experience without any latency from a server that's a thousand miles away from you, say. That's the magic sauce. 
So we we have some very exacting requirements that a firm like Amazon can't meet. They're more about web hosting. But IBM has been great. So they understand exactly our needs now and scaling with them is very easy at this point. And they have data centers around the world and they're adding to them constantly. I mean, it's becoming a big, gigantic business very, very quickly. So we have data. We're in, I think, uh, nine locations around the world right now. Okay. So when starting up a business like this, and this is the, in many ways, the million-dollar question for anybody starting a business, how did you think about getting the initial funding together so that you could take the idea and get it to, say, the prototype stage and then getting it ready to market, to launch, to get it to, to the people that you want to get it to? Well, we, we were able to build a prototype before we really raised any money, I mean, mostly because Ian's labor was free. So we were able to go into some angel investors and actually give them a demo. And the demo consisted of um, playing a first-person shooter game. And, and those, by the way, are the most data-intensive. When you play one of those games, there is data flying back and forth from wherever our server is in, in massive quantities every microsecond. Uh, so we were able to show people, hey, you know, look at this. We're playing you know, Halo or whatever, and we're 300 miles away from the server, and there's no noticeable latency or what you call packet loss, which is when you see sort of a pixelation. That's a pretty powerful demo to be able to give. And, and another thing we do is we show people a phone, and we'll put the phone in a little – they make these little cheap controllers now that look like Xbox controllers, but you slide a phone into them in landscape mode. And we can show people how they can play a game like Halo on their phones, which has never been possible, which just blows the minds of serious gamers. And so that's a pretty powerful demo. So we we raised two rounds of of seed financing. And honestly, I've raised a lot of money for a lot of different things in my life. I've never had an easier time than raising two rounds of of capital for this. Um, Now, having said that, next up for us is probably a Series A. And that's where the great bottleneck is right now because there's a lot of seed funding out there and uh, not as much Series A funding. So the Series A, the VCs and so forth can be pickier. So you really have to show some some serious results if you want Series A funding. Terrific. So for our listeners out there who are interested in getting involved in early stage technology businesses, uh, what are some of the features that you would look for in a business before investing or maybe more broadly speaking, uh, what are some traps to avoid? Well, assume you lose all your money. If you're just starting out, don't put more than, say, $25,000 in each company. I mean, angel investing is a wonderful thing. And it's usually what people do once they've sort of made a bit, bunch of money at something and you know want to retire from operating a business and you know, they become angel investors. And it's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing for our economy. It's a fun thing. I mean, there's an angel community in New York called New York Angels. And if you want to sort of join a crowd like that, that's probably very useful. I would say, uh, you know, be careful, though, because there will be ideas that just sound great to you. And they may be great, but execution is everything. I mean, ideas are a dime a dozen. Right. Um, I, I, you and I could sit here right now and come up with a bunch of great ideas. Execution is everything. It, it, it's and executing is so much harder than coming up with the idea. And then you have to deal with competition that you didn't know was there or came out of nowhere. There are always things you can't. The phrase you know you don't know what you don't know is especially true in this area. So you know, have fun with it. Uh, invest in people that seem really passionate about what they're doing and not just in it to cash out. And spread your money around a, a bunch of different situations. 
is the best advice I can give. So how do we keep uh, in touch with what's going on with Weigh In and Liquid Sky and, and your other thoughts? Uh, well, Weigh In, uh, it's weighin.com. We have a blog you can subscribe to or just read on, on the website. Uh, we have a Twitter account as well. And with Liquid Sky, we're about to start a blog on the website, actually. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter account, which is at Liquid Sky Soft, as in software. And um, we have an active community on Reddit. All these tens of thousands of people that have been participating in the beta all have active conversations on Reddit, and that's where they report bugs to us. And I mean, that's if you really want to do a deep dive. Um, uh, I guess that's about about it. You can obviously register for the product too, and you'll get all our emails and so forth, which we try not to send out too frequently. <laughs> well, terrific. Scott, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure hearing about it and, and really in a way peering into the future. We've been speaking with Scott Johnston, the co-founder and CEO of Liquid Sky. We've got a nice catalog of podcasts building up. You can hear them on iTunes.com or you can see what else is happening at FraserRice.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.